I want to invite Ben Skinnell to come up and read. He's actually going to be reading from Matthew 20, so we're going to deviate a little bit from our series in Hebrews. Matthew chapter 20, and he's going to begin reading in verse 29. So if you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29. Jesus heals two blind men. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by a prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Thanks, Ben, for reading. So there are sometimes... um if you think of your favorite movie, likely from that movie is a particular scene or two. And a lot of times those scenes that really stick with you are scenes that are really big and a lot of things going on. Some grand scene with lots of action and lots of things to really pull you in. But definitely to appreciate that big scene, you have to know what comes before that and set it up. And then also what's interesting is like after that big kind of epic scene is done, what happens in following up from that? So what happens coming in and what happens going out? The Bible, as you read it, gives you so many of these big, big scenes. Scenes that are just lots of moving parts, lots of things to take in. As a matter of fact, Palm Sunday is one of those scenes. Palm Sunday gives you, and if you've read that story before that Ben just read, if you've read it and it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it really does present it as this grand, grand scene, almost a spectacle. The the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, the beginning of the week when Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and later that week knowing he's going to be betrayed and arrested, tried and convicted, crucified, and buried, and then a week from that, be risen from the dead. But on that day, this whole spectacle is celebrating Jesus. And that's so different than what you're prepared to see from Jesus in so many other places, because 
often when Jesus would do a miracle, do you remember often he would tell them, don't go tell anybody. He would conceal his identity. He would pull back on that. But in this passage, with the triumphal entry, with Palm Sunday, he's not pulling back anything. It begins to build and build and build. The story has a completely different feel to it. I, I know likely many, most in the room, have heard this regularly, maybe even annually, you are reminded of the story. But Jesus is making this entrance into Jerusalem. And the, the only thing I really know to compare it with is that there is this, almost like a parade, this parade, and you can imagine after, you know, a big city, after a team wins a championship, they have this parade down a main street or a broad street or something where the, the roads are just flooded and even kind of side streets are flooded as well as everybody's attention is turned to this grand procession. And this is what's happening. Jesus is making an entrance. But strangely enough, even for the times, he's making his entrance on a donkey, and if you go, well, maybe they just did that back then. No, they didn't do that back then. That wasn't the normal way a grand entrance would be made. But here comes Jesus on an animal that was really just a beast of burden, really just an animal to help humans bear a heavy load. And that is what Jesus is riding. It's a spectacle. So many other details are in this passage. And you actually get kind of glimpses into other portions of Scripture. So you get... The fact that Jesus puts feet on the Mount of Olives, which it says here in chapter 21, reminds us of a prophecy in Zechariah 14 where it says when the Messiah comes, he will put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And even the verse 5, you have a quotation of Zechariah 9, and it says that this whole say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, that is to fulfill the prophet Zechariah, and that word fulfill, I think if we switch it around a little bit, we would say it's, it's to fill to the fullest extent what Zechariah was talking about. So Zechariah prophesied one day there's going to be a king coming, riding a donkey, and this is filling it to the fullest extent. This is Palm Sunday. You see God's glory, and you see Jesus' humility. He's receiving praise like he is God, but he's also clearly a human. He's not an angelic being. He's clearly a human that people have talked with and ate with and listened to. The whole city stirred up. Did you see that in verse 9, verse 10, verse 11? Even one translation says the whole city quaked, which there are other times when all of Jerusalem's all stirred up too, related to Jesus. When Jesus is born, the city is all stirred up because wise men come to Herod saying, where is this king? And the whole city is in an uproar. A few days after Palm Sunday, the whole, the whole city's going to shake again when Jesus says, it is finished. By the way, a couple days after that, three days after that, it's going to shake again on Easter Sunday. It says the ground shook. So here we have Jerusalem shaking and quaking. The crowd is stirred up. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But they're asking a question, which is 100% the right question to ask. It's like, who is this? I think even people that didn't even know what's going on, they, they're asking that question. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And the conclusion in verse 11 is that 
this is the prophet Jesus. This is what the crowds say. This is the prophet Jesus. But Jesus is such a common name. It's the name Joshua in Hebrew. It's this such a common name that they're saying, this is Jesus, the one from Nazareth. You know, Nazareth, it's in Galilee. So there's just all sorts of things. The whole crowd is stirred up, but they're having to identify, it's this Jesus, you know, the one from Nazareth, you know, that town in Galilee. It's, it is so many things going on, and, and so many don't know exactly what to do with Jesus, but they're saying, you know, the prophet that Moses talked about a thousand years before this? This is him. He's arrived. But it's also unexpected. The triumphal entry is this grand scene, such a special scene. But what I want to do today is look at what happened right before that entry. And then I'd also like to spend a little bit of time looking at what happens after it. What happened before it? What happens after it? You'll notice when Ben read, he read from chapter 20 and chapter 21. Because chapter 20, the end of that leads into chapter 21 of Matthew. So if you look at the end there, again, a, a verse uh, of chapter 20, you have in verse 29, disciples, Jesus and the disciples coming out of Jericho, headed to Jerusalem. And then in verse 30, it's like there are two blind men sitting by the road. They're sitting by the road, not because that was a great vantage point. They're sitting by the road because they have nowhere else. They are, they're blind. Life is hard, and it's in a society where there are not safety nets. No one's helping them, which is why they're sitting there begging for help. That's the scene going on. When they hear Jesus is coming, obviously they can't see him, but they're hearing something going on. And it reminds you just even some of the vulnerability of the position, but they start, they start crying out, Lord, have mercy, which another way of saying that is like, have a heart for us, Lord, have a heart for us. Like, care about us, Lord, have mercy. And I want to ask a question. I want to ask actually a few questions today. First question is this, what does Jesus do? So they're saying, Lord, have mercy. What does Jesus do with heartfelt cries from people who feel small. And by that feeling small, I mean people who the world just presses down, presses down and says, you really don't matter. And so they're crying out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy. What does Jesus do with heartfelt cries from people who need his help? By the way, when you find Jesus, there are always going to be people who feel really small all around him. He attracted them. And so there, there are these people around him. Here we have them. And, and they're crying out. These are heartfelt cries. They're saying, have a heart for us. Lord, have mercy. And this isn't some neat, organized request. This isn't like a carefully worded presentation or a carefully written grant proposal that maybe they can get some help here. This is not what's going on. I, I think our, our kids in school, they, middle school, high school teachers, sometimes it will help them be able to present their thoughts. And the way the teachers do to help them is a lot of times there's a, a, a rubric that they've got to follow. So it's like, first you need to cover this, and this needs to be a couple sentences, and next you need to do it. And it's really helping Helping someone go from, I have ideas, I have research, how do I put that into a presentation so that I do what the teacher is asking? And so there's a kind of a form you follow to begin to take those ideas and express them, neat and clean and organized. 
And there's none of that going on here in this story. It is not neat, tidy, clean, organized. I mean, you just, you just got a chaotic scene where people are saying, help, have a heart for us. There's nothing organized. It is chaos. You hear like a real burden from people who really need his help. And, and these kinds of scenes, if you've been in a crowd where it just gets a little bit on the verge of going nuts. I mean, you can appreciate what happens in verse 31. This gets some pushback. You've got the blind men crying loudly. And verse 31, it says, the crowd rebuke them. The crowd rebuke them, telling them to be silent. And so the blind men cried out all the more, Lord, have a heart, like Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, they cry louder, which makes it even more complicated. So picture it. I mean, you have the men, which obviously are in a humiliating position. They're having to cry out, ask for help, have to beg for help. They're, they're having to, like, maybe they will not get another chance at talking to Jesus. I mean, we know how his weekends, they don't. So they're crying out, Lord, help, help, have mercy. And then you got all the crowd, like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Maybe a few people, maybe a lot of people in the crowd are embarrassed. We're not told exactly why. Maybe it's like in that culture, you just didn't do stuff like that. Maybe you thought Jesus has a lot better things to do with his time. Maybe they were too proud. We don't need people like you around people like Jesus. Maybe they didn't think this was the right kind of request to make to Jesus. It's just like, let's pay attention. People very close to Jesus still aren't getting what he's about to do. And you know what, I mean, politely it tells them, like, it told them to be silent. That's polite for, what they're saying is like, you just need to shut up. You just need to shut up. The crowd rebukes them. We don't need that. Shut up. The more I think about it, the more, the way the whole scene is going down does make sense to me. I'm not saying it's right. It just does make sense to me. Because when people begin to make heartfelt cries and begin to get desperate and begin to get emotional about it, it does make people uncomfortable. When people are beginning to, even when people are beginning to come back to Jesus or come to Jesus, that's not always really neat and clean. Like generally what happens is people are in such a desperate spot, life breaks you down. And because life breaks you down, you become unraveled in lots of areas, somewhat, some even your emotions. And we ought to be prepared for that, to actually look like a mess. If people have been broken down by life, if, let's say we're not even pointing the finger like someone else, like their victims, let's say they have actually, by their own choices, no fingers to point, no blame to cast but themselves. If they begin to break their lives apart, and then they realize they are in a mess and all they've got really is a spot of saying, Jesus, I need your help this time. There's nothing about that situation that really looks pretty. Often it comes with lots of regrets, lots of pain, lots of brokenness, lots of mess that that person has created. And so you can imagine the scene. I think that's what's going on here. It isn't really peaceful. So they say it again. You saw that right there. It says they say it all the more. I mean, they get louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy. When they say, Lord, son of David, 
just take note of that. They're saying something that even the closest followers of Jesus didn't always quite get. They're saying Lord in implying that Jesus rules. He's not just like a great, great teacher with lots of uh, ability to give wisdom for life's lessons. They're saying you rule, you are in charge. And then they call him son of David, which is the Jewish way of saying you're the rescuer, you are the Messiah, you are the deliverer, you're the one that the whole world's been waiting for. I mean, they are saying some pretty amazing things about him. Lord, son of David. Because for a thousand years, people believed that a descendant of David, one of David's descendants would come one day. A son of David would come and sit forever on God's throne, David's throne, and would be king and would help desperate people. And so the blind men are saying, we are desperate and we sense you are the one, you are the Messiah, Lord help. It's ironic how much they see even though they're blind. They're seeing things that even the crowd doesn't see. Jesus poses a question to him in verse 32. It's like Jesus stops dead in his tracks. Jesus stopping, called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? It isn't a sarcastic question. It does remind us that Jesus wants a relationship. He stops all this. He stops the, the whole the whole the whole scene and says, what do you want me to do for you? This isn't going to be some on-demand, like, you know, if I want to watch that, I'll just, like, find the right remote and get whatever I want to watch. On Jesus doesn't do miracles like that. It's very personal, not transactional. And he asks them a question, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus hears another desperate cry, another heartfelt cry. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What does Jesus do with heartfelt cries from people who feel small? Well, it says he had pity on them. And pity may not be the best translation for you if you think pity is like from a position being high and mighty and you pity all those poor people. This is not the pity talked about. This is what's in response when they say, Jesus, have a heart for us. And, and right there in that moment, he has a heart for them. That's what it means. He's moved with compassion. When he hears things like, let me receive my sight. He hears an expression of faith. And one of my favorite writers on Matthew, Dale Bruner says, faith gets to Jesus. If anything gets to Jesus, faith gets to Jesus. Lord, let me recover my sight. It's a bold request. So no one's going to ask you for that this week. And no one's going to ask me for that this week. Because they know, if they ask me, Lord, I, I just want to, I want to receive my sight, I'm going to say, first of all, I'm not the Lord. And as much as I'd like to help you, I can't help you there. They're taking steps of faith toward Jesus, and faith gets to Jesus. And he touches them, which is, I guess you could call it a minor detail, but there are no minor details with Jesus. I mean, he touches them. Where I wonder how many people just went out of their way to walk around them. 
not walk within five yards of them. And he moves and he touches them. Doesn't heal at a distance, but moves toward them. You step out of that scene and into our world, and I think you can appreciate where I would go with this. Is there any part of you that's saying, have a heart for me, Jesus? Like, this is not the all put together, show up for church crowd. This is the, have a heart for me. Jesus, do you see where I am? Is there anything in your life that has gotten you to the point where I need your help? Anything moving you toward faith? Maybe not perfect faith. Maybe not great, great grand faith, but just some faith. Because faith gets to Jesus, anything moving, saying, Jesus, I know you can. Lord, help. These are the heartfelt cries. And they're, again, they're kind of preparing us for this triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday, which is such a spectacular scene. And even on the Palm Sunday, you hear some heartfelt cries as well. Because as Jesus enters the road and enters into Jerusalem, there are crowds that line and they're crying something. They're, they're shouting something. And actually the shouts begin to increase. And what they are shouting is, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna. And what that means is God save, like save. God saved the son of David. God bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. God save in the highest places, like the highest place from the highest we would even say maybe from the, from the depths, like bring this just, just completely, pull out all the stops and save and rescue. That's what the crowd begins to shout and Jesus hears those words. And what does Jesus do when he hears a crowds of people saying, save us, save us, help us? That Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David is a reference from Psalm 118. And they're all crying it out. And it again, seems like a chaotic scene to me, a lot going on there. You know, in many ways, God, in many ways, God doesn't save Jesus, right? I mean, we're going to read on Friday the story of the cross where Jesus is arrested and tried and convicted and mocked and beaten and hung and bloodied and killed. And God didn't save him from that. But then a week from now, we are going to say, oh, yes, God did save him. As Jesus rose from the dead and God rescued him from death and sin and hell and the devil himself. I I thought a lot about this week when they're crying out like, save us, save us, we need help, we need rescue. Those cries aren't very different from cries that I'm making, cries that you're making where you look at our world or you look at your own life or you look at complicated situations. And you're just saying, Lord, save, like Lord, help. This is such a mess. This is such a struggle. This isn't getting fixed anytime soon, if at all. This really hurts. And we're brought to the point where we think like, man, it would be really, really nice if someone cared. And it would be really nice if someone could ride in with help. If someone could just ride into my life and be able to help and call shots and deliver. It would be really great if someone could change a couple of these things in my life. And it would be really great if someone could guarantee something better. And by better, I mean something long-term, not just like, we'll get you out of a jam today, but we are going to change your life permanently. It would be so much better. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus knows what's in the hearts. I don't know what all was going on in the heart of the people crying and yelling and saying, God save us, but Jesus did. 
Jesus surely knew those that saw him as a means to an end, like a powerful ally and getting what you want. So maybe there were people shouting for that reason. But I have to also think Jesus saw the, the dad in the crowd, I'm partial to the dad in the crowd, who maybe didn't feel like he was spiritually on top of the world, but really, really cared about his family and really wanted to see them come and know the Lord. And so he cries out, save, we need help. And maybe he saw the weary mom or the weary grandma or a person tired. Maybe he saw the person, maybe made eye contact with the person who thought, you know what, I think the best days of my life are over and nothing's getting better now. And what is going through Jesus' mind? Scenes like this are just uh, a lot of bottled up energy. If you've ever been to a crowd that like gets emotional and gets loud, I mean, you just know it can bring some things out of you. And what does Jesus do when he hears those heartfelt cries? He shows up. He shows up. Now, it's not on the terms that everybody wants him to show up, but he shows up on his terms and he cares and he receives praise from that sinner and that sinner and that sinner and that sinner and he's still doing it. He's still receiving praise from all of us as imperfect and sinful and as rebellious as we are. It's a powerful scene. Matthew's not content to end it there, which that would be like, okay, Jesus rides into town, but he keeps going to the temple. And, and just for a couple, couple minutes here, look at verse 12. It does say Jesus entered the temple. And then he started driving people out of the temple, right? He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. What does Jesus do? Another question. Again, just for a few moments to think about what does Jesus do with broken systems that are reinforcing the wrong message? So we're looking at what happened before Palm Sunday and kind of what happened after the triumphal entry and Jesus walks into things that matter the most to him. I mean, the temple was a place where people connected to God, made sacrifices, worshiped, praised, prayed. And it's like all messed up. It had been turned into a convenience store. I mean, all sorts of things are going on. And maybe even like, maybe it's not even so so humorous of this, the spectacle of what was going on in the temple. Maybe it's something darker. And the people were really being hurt because instead of getting access to God, they were told, how much do you have? How much? And instead of being able to connect with God, they were going home with that road blocked because of some carnival taking place where God should have been worshipped. And Jesus says, is enough. I read this week, it's, Not like he destroyed anything, but he significantly rearranged the furniture is the way one person put it, which he does. And he reminds us that nothing even religious is going to stand between you coming to God. He's going to remove that obstacle. It's not going to be transactional. You're not going to use your money to somehow get in good with God. It's not the way it's going to work. So Jesus clears that path in the temple that day. Whatever you're drawn to think of the humility and modesty of Jesus riding a donkey, I'll hear you see the authority and the glory of Jesus saying, 
I will do whatever is necessary so that people can get to God, so that people can get to the Father. What I love is what comes next in verse 14. So you think like Jesus has just thrown out people from the temple, but look who he brings in in verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. No exclusion. No like, you don't belong. They come in. And it says he healed them. Their lives are changed. Which even that brings another tense encounter. In verse 15, it says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus was doing and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The chief priests, I mean, I think you could say the senior pastors. Which hits home. I mean, the religious people were the ones actually in verse 15 indignant. And they said to him, do you not hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, oh, I've heard. And have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. I mean, do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you may not get this, but the kids are getting it. 100%. The kids who are praising me, they're getting it. No, by the way, the babies that I'm sure are crying in the nursery now, their voice is able to articulate praise to the Lord. You're missing it, but they're not. Jesus receives the praise, the well-deserved praise, and so begins the most consequential week in human history. At the end of the week, Jesus is crucified. The next Sunday, he rises from the dead. Here we are on Palm Sunday 2022. It really does leave us with a choice. I, I think the choice is really one to two paths here. I mean, are we going to be the ones who really get it? Are we going to miss it? Are we going to be the ones with heartfelt cries, the people who feel pretty small, crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, help. Lord, save. Lord, have mercy. Will we accept Jesus not on our terms, but just like the blind men, just like the children, we accept him on his terms? Can I take us to prayer where we'll ask the Lord's help in making the right choice in choosing to accept him and praise him. Let me pray for us. Father, you know our hearts and you see way into the core the things that we've not told many, if anybody, about. You know, you see, and you sympathize with every weakness we have. And we're reminded today, your son came humbly and with authority. So humbly we ask, but also we ask in his name that you would hear the cries that we make right now. There are people that are very, very burdened in this room that maybe their heartfelt cry is coming to you and their cry is from a low place or a very dark place. And I pray you would remind them and assure them that you hear it. I pray just as you, uh, your son cleared out the temple that even in this room today, Father, you would block, you would just break down everything that would keep us from you. We need you to see us, Lord. We need you to save us. We can't live if you're far from us. So just as your son heard and received and drew near to people who were small, we ask that through your spirit, 
you would draw near to us as, as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.